0: stand for the reading of God's Word before Paul comes to preach in honor of God's Word. If you're able, we would stand. We'll be reading from 1st Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses. This is the Word of the Lord. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the Word, so that your prayers may not be hindered.
1: Pray now with me. Father, your word is so good, and we need it so badly. Lead us by your spirit now as we embark to worship you through submitting ourselves to do what your word says. We humble ourselves this morning. We need you. Lead us. Amen. Please be seated. If you're just joining us this week or listening in online because you saw the juicy, sometimes controversial text that we're going through today, we've been preaching expositionally through 1 Peter. Expositionally means that we expound on God's word. We go through it verse by verse. Verse. And chapter by chapter. This is our normal habit at Orchard Bible Church. We're in a section of 1 Peter where the apostle is giving instructions on what I called a few weeks ago, right relationships. Four weeks ago, we learned about right relationship with the government. Three weeks ago was right relationship with our employer. And today we delve into Peter's instructions for right relationship inside the home in marriage, I was thinking that Peter really has a penchant for the controversial. I mean, about the only relationship that he might have addressed that has the potential for more controversy is if he wrote a section on right relationship to the in-laws. <laughs> I mean, coming off the holiday, I'm sure that many of you are wishing that Peter had given us some direction in that regard. But we know that that's covered in other places where it says be patient, be kind, love covers a multitude of sins. This morning, we're embarking on a little bit of a mini-series, a three-week excursion on marriage. I'll be talking about the text that Reed just read this morning. The next two weeks are also going to be on marriage. I'm the leadoff guy, which means my job is to get on base. Nate is the second and third, batter in the order. And that means his job is to drive runs in. So buckle up for some big swings the next two weeks. No pressure, Nate. But seriously, each week as we open God's word, there will be great encouragement, great application for all of us, every one of us, as we pause on this topic of marriage. Before the unmarried among us, check out or make plans for the next couple of weeks You need marriage. I don't mean necessarily that you need to be married. I mean that marriage is such a big deal that God ordained it. We know from from his word, and I'm sure we'll hear more about this in the next couple weeks, that marriage isn't merely about you and me or our marital state, but it's about the union that gives us understanding about our relationship. With Christ as his bride. So if you're a Christian, even if you're an unmarried Christian, you need to know about marriage. So no skiing the next two Sundays. It's important that we root today's text in the overarching narrative in 1 Peter. So let's have a little review. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's a heavy-hitting verse. It's so heavy, in fact, that it sets the footing or foundation for the rest of the book of First Peter. Peter spends the rest of the book helping us to understand this great life-altering truth and what it means for our lives, specifically what it means for our suffering and how to live in light of the gospel when we suffer and encounter trials of many kinds. Peter starts broadly and talks of suffering generally. In the past few verses, he's narrowed it down and giving us specific instruction as it relates to maintaining right relationship underneath the government, our employers, and now in our marriages. In our text for today, Peter continues to write about how the gospel of Jesus Christ reorders important relationships. This time about marriage. You see, spouses reveal Jesus through how they relate to one another in marriage. Wives, through right submission to their husbands. And men, through living with their wives in an understanding way as co-heirs of the grace of life. In doing this, spouses reveal Jesus to one another and also to the onlooking world, perhaps its children in your home, causing them to hope in Jesus. This is Peter's primary concern. Verse 6 of chapter 1 continues, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. We're to see our trials in light of this reorienting power of the resurrection of Jesus and the salvation that we have in him. For those among us who are married, it doesn't take long in that relationship to experience both the joys and the sorrows in marriage in a fallen world. I think that this is one of the various trials that Peter had in mind in chapter 1 when he wrote that. We'd be making a mistake if we made this text in marriage in general just about marriage for marriage's sake. I love Gary Chapman's book that's titled Sacred Marriage, subtitled, What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? Holiness matters more than happiness because holiness reflects Jesus in us and it magnifies him. Joy is a byproduct of that. It's a deep, lasting, rich, satisfying joy. But often... It comes through the furnace of refining, even in marriage, maybe especially in marriage. If we're to make it through the various trials, we need to understand this long view of marriage and what God has in mind for those who are in it. We need to see marriage isn't just about us who are in it, but about how it reveals Jesus to the world and to our spouses. Let's consider Peter's words and how they exhort a wife to reveal Jesus to her husband and the onlooking world. Peter begins this section by writing in verse 1. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see you respectful and pure conduct peter's audience is the christian wives of unbelieving men it isn't exclusive to christian wives of unbelieving men but peter has a clear evangelistic purpose in mind in roman society if a man adopted another religion the wife would be expected to also adopt that religion For a wife to convert to Christianity by putting faith in Christ would be a bold move that at first glance would be subversive of the culture, the cultural expectation. For many in Roman society, this conversion of the wife could be seen as very rebellious. At worst, it could lead to divided homes. Peter has something else in mind when the outcome is considered. Wheaton Bible scholar and translator Karen Job says this of this text. Because the call to faith in Christ is a call for life-changing personal realignment, the conversion of either spouse in a Greco-Roman marriage held a potential for serious problems, both between the couple and between the couple and society. Converted spouses also no doubt experienced confusion about how their new identity in Christ should affect their relationship to their unbelieving spouse and whether new life in Christ necessarily implied a change of one, one's role in the social structure. Instead of dividing the home, Peter instructs wives to be subject to their husbands, remaining submissive. Even if a woman's husband did not convert to Christianity, Peter says, stay submissive to him. And in doing so, in your attitude and in your actions, perhaps he'll be won over to Christ it's clear in this instruction that these husbands had heard the gospel because he says, even if some did not obey the word, they had heard about the word, but they didn't submit themselves to it. A wife continuing to preach to a husband in these circumstances probably had the, the potential to just drive them away and to close them down from listening even more. But seeing the gospel embodied in their wives' submission might be the means that would win them to Christ. Now, not offending is certainly not the sole criteria for when, how, and why we speak about Christ. But there is wisdom in considering these things when we evangelize. In giving this instruction, Peter both upholds and he subverts the cultural standard. While he encouraged their submission, he also had a view towards transformation of the couple and the man and specifically in their evangelism that they would hopefully believe the gospel submit to Christ I think that this is a great example both to the husband and the onlooking world Peter says in verse 2 that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives so while he's upholding some cultural expectation He didn't want everyone to think that Christianity was there to to undermine and uproot everything that kept this Roman culture together. He's thinking apologetically of the application of this rich, deep theology of marriage and how it points to Christ's relationship to the church. Now, we need to spend a bit more time considering what being subject means and what it does not mean. If these women were to reveal Jesus to their husbands who weren't believers, we need to know what this looks like. I've already mentioned that some of the women who are likely reading this in first century Asia Minor, Palestine, were new converts whose husbands hadn't converted. It wasn't outside the realm of possible that some thought that they should leave their husbands in such a state. Peter goes against this notion here. Now, it's also likely... Six of the seven verses in our text today are addressing the wives. Sort of a natural question is why? Well, just like Peter addressed those experiencing travails at the hands of the government, suffering in that way, those suffering as slaves under different masters, his goal is to encourage those suffering. Wives likely went through more of a struggle and suffering than husbands did because of the cultural standards and the treatment of women at this time. Add to it that some had converted to Christianity and their husbands hadn't, and these women needed Peter's encouragement. Now, one of the cultural elephants in the room this morning is the Apostle Peter's words to Christian wives to be subject. Today, this is taboo for a different reason. This part of the message then wouldn't have been a hot-button thing. It wouldn't have stirred up a lot of controversy for a woman to be told to be subject. Today, however, this is nearly as hot-button as you can get. We need to understand what submission is and what it isn't. There's been abuse of these verses and also neglect through the years. The following seven points I've adapted from some work that John Piper has done on this topic. Number one, being submitted does not mean that a wife agrees with everything that the husband does or wants to do. It does not mean that if a husband is leading the family into sin in his attitude or action, that the wife should follow right along into that. It does look like the kind of loving, thoughtful, kind engagement with your husband on important issues in your life together that's going to equal good things for your family. You aren't bound to agreement. You're bound to willfully engage in a humble manner that's submissive to the leadership of the husband. Number two, A wife being submissive to her husband does not mean that she turns off her brain or will and blindly follows whatever the husband does. A husband and wife complement one another in marriage because the sum of both of their wills and emotions and experiences is greater than they would be if they were separate. A husband needs his wife. He needs her thoughtful engagement and vice versa. They need one another. In marriage in this way. Number three, being submissive does not mean a wife avoids every effort to change her husband. We read in the text that Peter's desire is for the conduct of the wives to be the catalyst for change in the husband's life. We know that the husbands had heard the word proclaimed and were still unbelieving. This does not mean that a wife cannot verbally engage in an effort to change the trajectory of her husband. This requires wisdom that both spouses need to keep in mind. Just think of effective communication in marriage. When we talk, how we talk, the tone we talk with. All of that's important. A wife ought to make every effort to communicate openly, honestly, clearly, gently with her husband about these things especially things he might be doing that are destructive or detrimental to their marriage, to their family. Now, if you have an unbelieving husband and they're living sinfully, you ought to communicate openly and honestly, lovingly. There's a fine boundary between issues that are black and white and lead to imminent destruction like abuse, infidelity, fraud, and things like these. There's things that are less clear. Preferences. Pray for balance in how, we, in how we communicate about these as married couples. Pray for I think of the, the verse in Proverbs, uh, to the wife, to not be a, like a dripping faucet. How you engage and communicate about things is going to endear your husband to you, even when you communicate tough things, or it may drive him away. And in his pride, it may steal him to not change and to not act. You're not accountable for the husband's choice or sin, but you are going to be accountable for how you handle it. Now, remember, if you have an unbelieving husband, he doesn't have the Holy Spirit active in him. His heart doesn't value spiritual things like it should, and your first conversation should always be with the Lord in prayer, asking, pleading with him for your husband's repentance and salvation. Ask him for wisdom to live faithfully with such a man. And thank the Lord for his common grace that allows you joy and provision in this marriage. If your Christian husband is living sinfully in an unrepentant manner, in love, you need to address him about it. If you go to him in love and there is not change, I suggest follow the pattern for Matthew 18 about confronting a believer who's living in sin. Now, I'm not talking about a Christian husband who's struggling with sin, okay? We'd all get confronted. I'm talking about a Christian husband who's quit fighting, who doesn't think he needs to fight. This is a serious thing, and God's word gives us instruction for how to deal with this. Number four, a wife being submissive to her husband does not mean she puts the husband's will and desires before Christ. This would be idolatry, and it's clearly not what Peter means here either. The text clearly teaches that the wife is first and foremost a follower of Jesus and then a wife. Though the husband is going down the path of unbelief, she does not follow him. Number five. Submission does not mean that a wife gets personal, spiritual strength from a husband. Now, a good husband does indeed help to strengthen his wife. This is clearly seen in many relationships, and the husband-wife relationship is greatly used by God to strengthen and encourage. But in this text, though the husband is bankrupt spiritually and perishing the wife is not without the source of her strength. That's the Lord. The example given here is Sarah, Abraham's wife, whose hope was in God, and it gave her strength to inspire and encourage her husband, to reveal her true hope to him through her attitude and action, not to look to Abraham to be, his, to be her source of strength and hope. Question, are, are you codependent? Does your husband's opinion of you matter too much? Is he able to crush you? He or your marriage might be an idol if his opinion matters too much. Now, trust me, these are really hard questions to answer. We certainly need the Holy Spirit's help with discernment, but the bottom line is this. Don't ask your husband to answer questions about your identity that he wasn't meant to answer. He cannot give you your identity. Only your heavenly father can do that. Number six, being in submission to one's husband should not be done out of fear of the husband. First and foremost, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And it's from this place of respect and submission to the Lord That a woman submits to her husband, while unfortunately fearing a husband is a terrible reality in some marriages. This is not Peter's exhortation to submission here. Number seven, submission is to your own husbands, not all men. Peter clearly teaches that women are to submit to their husbands, not to all men. Scripture makes clear that submission is inside the marital relationship and is not to all men in general. This is one of the points that I think has been mistaught and abused in Christian circles. Nowhere does Peter, Paul, or any other New Testament author say that a woman's submission is to all men in general. As it relates to submission more broadly, women and men are submitted to governing authorities. Women and men are submitted to their employers. Women and men are to be submitted to their local church's leadership, and elders. Elders are called to submit to one another, and all Christ followers are called to be submitted to Christ. Now, authority has been put in place by God in these different structures and relationships throughout our society, our families, and our church, and they're meant for good. But in this text this morning, the call is for women to submit to their own husbands. Not more than that. So what is submission then? Submission is an inclination to follow, or excuse me, to allow the husband to lead and take responsibility within the family. Piper describes it as a thought process that sounds something like this. I delight when you lead and love and take the initiative and responsibility for our family's well-being. I enjoy following your lead. Your passivity in our family is not a good thing. And when you lead, husband, we all do better. My creativity and unique ability flourishes when you lead well. Submission comes out of trust in God. In verse 5, it says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Submission isn't from a place of inferiority or a lack of equality, but from a place of hoping in God and submitting because this is his desire for wives. Over time, as you are obedient to this, you're made like Christ. Your joy will increase and your reward will be great. Submission in marriage puts you in this holy women who hoped in God camp. And that's where you ought to want to be. In verses 3 and 4, Peter writes, when speaking of the wife's respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What does it look like then for a wife, or we could ask this of women in general, married or not, to reveal Jesus in their beauty? Now, Peter isn't prohibiting the physical adornment or enhancement of beauty in this way, otherwise we won't be able to wear clothes. He's saying this shouldn't be the standard for what kind of beauty reveals Jesus. Nancy Piercy, in her book, Love Thy Body, puts this in perspective well, speaking about how a Christian ought to be a steward of their body. She says, we have a stewardship responsibility before God to treat our bodies with care and respect. We take care of our body and we groom ourselves with this in mind not more. External beauty, as this world sees it, is fleeting. And it isn't the primary means that a woman should use to reveal her beauty. And ladies, did you catch the last part of verse four? This is very precious in God's sight. Don't let any man, whether he's a studly husband candidate, or whether he's that charming husband provider that you're already married to. Don't let them be what controls your quest for beauty. The standard that God has set is that your adornment would be the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit before your God. Your gentleness and quietness and peace of heart comes from the firm foundation that you are his child. Your heavenly father says that this is, very precious. When you trust his assessment of who you are and how you were made and what your true beauty is, you reveal Jesus better than you ever will if you elevate external beauty beyond its proper place. The gospel changes everything in this regard. You're beautiful because you're an image bearer, because you've been redeemed, not simply because of your external qualities. Now, there are tremendous and overwhelming lies that are perpetuated everywhere in our world today. The message everywhere to women is you have to be hypersexual to be beautiful and to be loved. To stand out and to really live out your womanhood. Now, the body and its beauty are real. God made women beautiful There's not shame in it, and I'm not embarrassed to say it. You ladies, young and old, are made as image bearers to reveal his goodness in your physical beauty as well. But don't buy into the culture's lies that you have to sexualize your beauty and reveal that. The context for your sexuality to be shared is inside of marriage. Now, Peter does not pass by husbands, and their role in revealing Jesus to their wives. And he speaks now to Christian husbands. Verse 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise, is Peter's way of saying, this is a two-way street, fellas. Some would hear the first six verses and quit reading and make that their hobby horse. In Peter's words to men, we see the equal and complementary nature in marriage. He starts by saying, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, the Greek means something like, live with your wives in a way of knowledge, as in know them. One way to think about this would be to combine knowledge of your wife with consideration. Know them and be considerate of them. Know what makes them, excuse me. Men, you're to live with your wife in a way that you understand her delicacies and her delights. What turns her on and what makes her day? What things do you need to address with love and gentleness in your relationship? You need to know what makes them tick, what excites them, know what scares them, know what, where, when, and how they're sensitive so that you can caution yourself from hurting them in those areas. Know who they are, know their strengths, know their weaknesses, know them and understand them. Notice he didn't say, husbands, treat your wife like a project to be fixed and worked on. We all know that no wife wants that. He didn't say, Lord it over them because you have the authority. Make them feel bad because they don't act, think, and deal with life's issues the same as you. That's not what he said, guys. He said, know them and understand them. Again, Peter's message is subversive here. The norm would have been for men to dominate and overpower women. They didn't have the status that men did, and Peter clearly gives them equal footing here. With men as he continues. Verse 7 continues, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. I think Peter means weaker in the physical sense. Throughout time, there's been some controversy about exactly what he means. I think the local context, other teaching in Scripture, he's talking physically. Again, the standard for the day would have been to take advantage of of women because men can just force them into submission physically. They could threaten and intimidate them and cause them fear. Peter, I think, is this direct reference to physical abuse. Physical or sexual intimidation and violence have no place in marriage or any other relationship, for that matter. God will judge the abusive husband And the local authority may as well. This is one way that the local authority restrains evil. Because abusive husbands, that's evil. That's not how men are called to love their wives. And let me make this much clearer as well. If you're in a messy marriage where you're being abused, you need help. You can have a submissive spirit to the Lord while not allowing your husband to abuse you. You are an image bearer, and if you are being abused and manipulated, let me say it again, you need help. Peter's calling men to a higher standard than what the culture called them to. Christian men ought to live in an understanding way with their wives because they had the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to guide them. The truth that men's and women's physical and emotional composition is complementary, and that though different, they're co heirs. Of the grace of life. Peter said that wives are co heirs of the grace of life. The grace of life is referring to the spiritual life that they had both found in Christ. Men and women, husbands, wives, were co heirs. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. We're Christ's children. We share equally in his grace and redemption. We're equals with different roles. Now, Peter knew sometimes that guys are thick-headed. They don't always get it. They need some more obvious hints sometimes. So he doubles down. He says to do all this because if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. Literally, I think your prayers, of course he hears them, but he disregards them. John MacArthur has famously said, if your family isn't doing well, Don't export the ministry, guys. Don't grandstand in prayer thinking that you're outwitting God. Take seriously your care and concern for how you treat your wife. If not, your prayers are hollow and come from religiosity and legalism, not a contrite, repentant heart. God isn't listening when we are pious in one area while godless and vile in another. This brings us to our conclusion and our last point today before we close. Hope in Jesus. Now I'm sure that some have thought to themselves this morning, but my husband doesn't lead, Paul. I've asked him to, I've pleaded with him to work harder, to love better, to provide more. Or maybe he leads, but it's not in an understanding way. Maybe he leads in a domineering way that's forceful and impatient. Or maybe you guys have thought, she is rebellious. Submit, that's not part of her vocab. Quiet and submissive spirit. She likes to yell, learn to be quiet. So what about when marriage doesn't go as it was designed or how we planned for it? Now, certainly we should work on our marriages and seek to do as Peter has written. It's his instruction in how we can do that this morning. But no matter your life situation, whether you're happily married or whether you're married and struggling or somewhere in between, whether you're single and you wish you were married or single and you never want to be married, Your hope is not in your life situation, the health of your marriage or the success of your dreams for it one day. Your hope is in Jesus. Now marriage embodies the gospel by portraying the relationship between Christ and the church. There is one perfect bridegroom that was sent by his father, and that's Jesus. He has justified and perfected, in that sense, his bride, the church. Peter's exhortation to wives and husbands from our text today is so that no matter the state of your marriage, you'd work within your role in marriage to point to the hope that we have in Jesus and the redemption that we have in him. That is why Peter is writing these words that it would cause a woman with a yet unbelieving husband to hope in Jesus and to trust him and for a Christian husband to live with his wife in a way that he'd point her to the great God who has provided all of our hope by sending his son. 1 Peter 1.5 says, By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to, to be revealed in the last time you are being guarded by God's power. If you're having a bad day, if you're having a rocky time in marriage, you want to know how to make it better and give yourself hope to press on, to continue to work hard at growing? Think about the depth of that truth. God's power is guarding you. The end of that verse says, for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. Jesus has come and he's lived among us. He's died as our sacrifice to redeem us and secure for us an eternal relationship with him. We can trust that the trials in marriage and the imperfections in marriage and the heights of joy in marriage are part of his work in our life. He will use our brokenness for his glory, for our good. He will turn ashes into beauty. Now, Jesus has been revealed, and that is our hope. Upon that rock is our foundation. Upon the truth of Jesus' resurrection has our hope been secured. Because of that truth, our imperfect marriages will be used mightily by him, both in our lives and those around us, for his glory, to reveal the hope of his gospel. Through our trials in marriage, we both experience and we reveal the hope that we have in Jesus. As we close today, I want to leave you with with these words from Peter just prior to our passage today. Alan preached on these three weeks ago, and I think it's a perfect way to end. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Our hope is in Jesus. Please stand as we close in prayer. Father, as we consider these words from Peter, we're we're thankful for the encouragement they offer us. No matter the state of our marriage or our marital state, single, unmarried, widowed, Lord, we Look at this wonderful image, imagery that you've given us in marriage that it's an example of the way that Christ loved the church, that he loved us. It shows us both Christ's role, our role as the church, but in our marriages it encourages us. It gives us good wisdom for how to walk. I pray for courage for everyone here, Lord, to humbly follow you and consider these words as we go. For your glory. In our joy. We pray these things. Amen. You're dismissed.